Welcome to the Critique May Journal Club Review. I'm Neil Orford, and the aim of this podcast is to provide an informal overview of the last month's critical care literature. The articles reviewed can be found on the Critique Journal Club on our website. So, let's get into it. What did May give us in the critical care literature? Perhaps one of the big events for the month was the publication of the new Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome definition, the Berlin definition in JAMA. The Berlin definition was developed through a consensus process to try to address what were perceived as inadequacies of the current or pre-existing definition, and that is a lack of explicit criteria for the definition of acute, the sensitivity of the PF ratio to different ventilator settings, the poor reliability of the chest x-ray criteria, and the difficulties in distinguishing hydrostatic edema. So the Berlin definition authors, first of all, give us an ARDS conceptual model, which is it's a type of acute, diffuse, inflammatory lung injury, which leads to increased pulmonary vascular permeability, increased lung weight, and loss of aerated lung tissue. The hallmarks are hypoxemia and bilateral radiographic opacities associated with increased venous admixture and increased physiological dead space and decreased lung compliance. The morphological hallmark of the acute phase is diffuse alveolar damage, that is edema, inflammation, hyaline membrane or hemorrhage. In terms of timing, the onset must be within one week of a known clinical insult or new or worsening respiratory symptoms. The chest imaging criteria have been changed a bit to bilateral opacities consistent with pulmonary edema on the chest radiograph, which was the existing criteria, but they've also added that these findings can be demonstrated on CT scan as well. In terms of the origin of edema, it must be respiratory failure which is not fully explained by cardiac failure or fluid overload as judged by the treating physician. If no ARDS risk factor is apparent, then some objective evaluation like ECHO, is needed to help eliminate the possibility of hydrostatic or cardiogenic edema. One of the big changes is that they've removed the acute lung injury definition and instead categorised ARDS into three mutually exclusive categories based on degree of hypoxemia. So these are now based on PF ratio, mild, which is a PF between 200 and 300, moderate, a PF between 100 and 200, and severe, a PF less than 100. When they tested these new criteria against existing databases of ARDS, mild had a mortality of 27%, moderate 32%, and severe 45%. There are some limitations to the new criteria that the consensus group have recognised. Firstly, the definition does not include etiology, and secondly, There were a number of proposed ancillary criteria that were considered, tested and then removed because they didn't add predictive value to the severe model or the data was lacking in the previous meta-analyses of ARDS. Now these included compliance, minute ventilation, PEEP and severity of radiographic changes. So in summary, we have a new ARDS definition and this is a must-know for all intensivists. The big news in sepsis research for the month uh, was the publication of the prowess shock trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, one we've been waiting for for a while. 
For those of you who don't know, this is the trial that took Zagreus off the market. It's a well-conducted, multi-centre, international RCT of Zagreus, or APC, versus placebo in 1,600 critically ill patients with septic shock requiring a minimum of 5 mics per minute of noradrenaline at entry. There was no difference in 28-day or 90-day mortality and no difference in complications other than an increase in non-serious bleeding in the APC group. APC is off the market because of this trial and it has been an interesting journey. There are questions that remain, like why did the original prowess study show benefit and prowess shock show none? It's also been a big month for aspirin. The Warfasses investigators published a trial in the New England Journal which reported reduced recurrence of venous thromboembolism in patients who had completed 6 to 18 months of oral anticoagulation treatment when assigned to aspirin compared to placebo for an average of 23 months. So this suggests that aspirin, after you've completed your warfarin, prevents recurrence of venous thromboembolism. Aspirin made it into the New England Journal again with a paper comparing the efficacy of warfarin versus aspirin in preventing ischemic stroke in patients with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction who are in sinus rhythm. In 2,300 patients followed for up to six years, there was no difference in the primary outcome. There was a reduced risk of ischemic stroke with warfarin, but that was offset by an increased risk of major hemorrhage. So overall, it looks like the choice between warfarin and aspirin should be individualised. There are a couple of cardiology trials that caught our eye. The first one in critical care medicine was a study looking at mild therapeutic hypothermia in patients with cardiogenic shock. This small hypothesis generating trial suggests that mild hypothermia provides better cardiac and hemodynamic conditions in cardiogenic shock following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The mechanism is likely to be positive inotropy and increased peripheral vascular resistance. The second cardiology trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it compared the outcomes for percutaneous coronary intervention in hospitals with cardiac surgical support compared to those without. This RCT randomised patients to undergo PCI at a hospital with or without cardiac surgical support and reported non-inferiority in hospitals without surgical support. The co-primary outcomes were six-week mortality and a composite major adverse events outcome. The need for emergency CAGs were very low at 0.1 to 0.2%. So this challenges the idea that you can only do PCIs where you have surgical support. Chlorhexidine was popular last month, with the first study published in the American Journal of Medicine reporting how chlorhexidine bathing was associated with a significant reduction in central venous catheter-associated bloodstream infection, or CLABSI, -E, and how these reductions were sustained post-intervention when chlorhexidine bathing was unmonitored. And they reduced their central or CLABSI -E rates from 6.4 to 1,000 per catheter days, which is reasonably high, uh, down to 2.6 after the intervention. In a second chlorhexidine body washing study, 
a systematic review of seven studies reporting rates of antimicrobial resistant bacteria was published in, the intensive, in intensive care medicine. There was a fair bit of variety in these studies, but some reported a reduction in MRSA carriage and bacteremia, while the one study reporting VRE carriage and bacteremia reported a reduction in the chlorhexidine group. There was no reported evidence of efficacy against gram-negative bacteria. So overall, this study was positive for chlorhexidine body washing, but it seems like there are more questions that need to be asked. In the paediatric critical care literature, there is an impressive nutrition study that reports on feeding practices and their relationship to clinical outcomes in 31 PICUs in eight countries. The observation that failure to reach enteral nutrition targets was associated with an increase in mortality after adjusting for severity of illness scores and other confounders is interesting. It is important to know that the data for confounders is missing in over 30% of cases. So overall, this tells us that nutrition delivery is often inadequate, that it is possible that improving it will improve outcomes, opening the door for interventional feeding trials in paediatric ICU. Also in children, a very interesting retrospective study was published in intensive care medicine describing the development and outcomes of an ECMO service at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Over the 23-year period reported, this group performed 467 ECMO episodes, with 52 episodes instituted for pneumonia, the biggest killer of children worldwide. They describe improving outcomes over time, increasing to an 88% survival since 2005. Well worth a read if you're interested in ECMO. In the BJA, there's been an interesting prospective study of airway complications following intubation published. This Scottish study describes outcomes in 2,260 intubations performed in 22 of the 24 ICUs in Scotland. Interestingly, 40% occurred after hours, 75% were urgent, and 91% were successful on first pass. First pass intubation was 70% in those who had been had less than 12 months experience and over 90% successful in those with over 12 months experience. The most common complications were hypoxia and hypotension. That's not surprising. Um, they commonly used propofol followed by thiopentone, etomidate, ketamine and midazolam. Capnography was used only 54% of the time and ICU mortality for the group was more than 20%. So the points of interest here really are that most doctors with less than 12 months experience in intubating probably could do with supervision when intubating. Is first pass intubation really the outcome that matters? 26.7% ICU mortality and 40% of intubations occurring at night are quite high numbers, well, particularly from an Australian perspective. And uh, not surprisingly, propofol makes your blood pressure go down. A propensity score matched cohort study comparing hospitalized patients that took azithromycin to those that received no antibiotics or received amoxicillin, ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin reported an increase in cardiovascular death in the azithromycin group. 
In patients with the highest risk of cardiovascular disease, this represented an additional 245 cardiovascular deaths per 1 million courses. The risk of death was also significantly higher with azithromycin compared to ciprofloxacin. Cardiotoxicity with macrolides is well known, but this is the first study to associate mortality. Patients with a life-threatening and non-cardiovascular illness were excluded to remove the confounding cause of death. So perhaps that dilutes the critical care perspective, that is, there wasn't a critical care study. However, azithromycin is commonly used for severe community-acquired pneumonia, so the message cannot be ignored. Should we stop using azithromycin in patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia in ICU? Should we stop it in patients with risk factors for cardiovascular disease or perhaps with prolonged QT intervals? Or is it safe to ignore it because it's low risk? Finally, there were two interesting studies about how we in intensive care work. The first, published in the New England Journal, looked at nighttime intensivist staffing and mortality among critically ill patients. There is an increasing body of literature about this, this issue of nighttime staffing of ICU. Should there be consultant presence? Does it confer a benefit to patient outcomes? And what is the personal and financial cost? This US study retrospectively examined patient data from ICUs in 34 hospitals and performed a survey on staffing and organisational structure. The primary outcome was hospital mortality. The primary exposure was nighttime intensivist, defined as ICU physician in ICU or on-site or immediately available. Multiple covariates were analysed to reduce confounding. There was no difference in patient demographics between the ICUs with and without nighttime intensivists. The nighttime cover modelled in ICUs without an intensivist ranged from an ICU resident to a non-ICU resident to no physician. They reported a benefit with nighttime intensivist ICUs where there was a model of low-intensity daytime staffing rather than high-intensity daytime staffing where there was no benefit from nighttime ICU. So what, what were these models? Well, the models were defined as follows. Daytime intensivist staffing model was based on the role of the daytime intensivist in the ICU. So optional consultation with an intensivist was categorised as low intensity and mandatory consultation with the intensivist or primary transfer of care to the intensivist is categorised as high intensity. For those of us in high intensity models, which is Australia and New Zealand, where the closed ICU model is practised or we have intensive cares run by intensive care physicians, this makes sense. This high-intensity model um, should result in better care, better systems, and less crises at night. And it seems to suggest that the high-intensity daytime model with a nighttime ICU resident or registrar is a good model that may not necessarily be improved by consultant presence at night, which is a relief for those of us who don't want to spend our nights at the hospital once we're consultants. For those of us who work in ICUs with a low-intensity model, that is, no daytime mandatory intensivist, it suggests that outcomes could be improved by either moving to the high-intensity daytime model or, or the closed ICU, or by having consultants present at night. I'll leave it to you to decide which one is better. This heads nicely into an article by George Skoronsky published in the Medical Journal of Australia which is a review of the greying intensivist 
aging and medical practice, everyone's problem. This is important reading for all of us, as we are either an aging intensivist, a midlife intensivist contemplating the future, or a young intensivist or future intensivist wondering what's going to go on with our older colleagues. It talks about what age can we remain on call in a public hospital? How will neurocognitive changes affect us? How do we assess aging intensivists? Competency, age ceilings, it all seems difficult. And is there a way to maximise the value of older intensivists using their experience, mentoring, audit roles and reducing the risks, crisis decision making as they get older? Again, valuable reading and food for thought. So that's it for this month's Journal Club, May 2012. If you want to know more, come to Critique and read the Journal Club comments and look at the abstracts. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.